Hello, everybody. Good morning. If you're on the East Coast, um, good afternoon. If you're in the UK, if I'm getting all my time zones right, welcome to the 21st installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. I'm your host, Kira Janine. Today, we're exploring, exploring building integrated workflows for rare disease diagnosis. Our panelists are experts in interoperability standards and technology. We have Charles Keenan and Orion Bousquet. And we just want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to be interviewing our panelists here. And as we go through, this is your assignment, uh, viewers. I really want you to put your questions in the Q&A box so that we can get to your questions at the end of the webinar. But I don't want you to say, oh, I'll just ask it at the end and forget about it. So pop those in there. Um, I'll remind you throughout our webinar here. Um, so really looking forward to answering your questions because that's always my priority. But for those that don't know, Phenotips is a complete solution for medical genetics. Um, Phenotips offers software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow. So Phenotips offers tools like pedigree builders, human phenotype ontology capture, and diagnostic insights. As many of us have experienced, electronic health records are not built for genetics. So Phenotips really saw the need for this and is filling that gap by providing a unified and seamless genetics workflow. And our speaker series here, as I said, it's the 21st installment, which I can't believe, like we're already in the 20s with this. And we started this in the pandemic so that we could connect with healthcare providers in genetics throughout the world. So it is really great. And I think uh, in the webinar today, we're really going to be able to talk about the different insight from different countries. Um, so it's always nice to, you know, for me to get outside of, of the U.S. Um, state of mind and, and the way that our healthcare system works and really also be looking at many of you are joining us from the U.K. and Canada. Um, so as I mentioned, I'm Kira Dean, your host for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today. Um, this is a genetics podcast. We have over 200 episodes in the last 10 years, and we've won a couple podcast awards for best science and medicine podcast. And I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor. Um, so those are kind of the roles that I do outside of, um, you know, working with everybody at Phenotips here. But enough about me. Let's talk about the important people here. So Charles Keenan is an inoperability specialist at Phenotips. He has a BS in life sciences and a master's in health informatics. Charles' role at Phenotips includes designing and planning the integrations that surround the Phenotips solution. And Dr. Orion Buskey is the CEO of Phenotips. He holds a PhD in computer science and has over a decade of experience in genomic health data and operability. This includes the development of data standards with the Global Alliance for Genomics and Health and the Matchmaker Exchange and the technical development of platforms to support and help diagnose patients living with rare diseases, such as Rare Connect and um, Phenome Central. So thank you so much both for joining us. I'm really excited to dive into all your expertise today because we're talking about a lot of topics that I don't know too much about. And so I'm going to be learning right along with our viewers. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Kira. Thanks for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today talking with you and uh, hearing what questions everyone who's in attendance has for us. Awesome. So I figure we could open up our conversation and, and really set up our session for viewers of, as I said, having that perspective of different areas of the world. So, you know, Phenotips works with multiple institutions across, as I said, the United States, Canada, and UK primarily. 
what gaps have you noticed with existing workflows? What's working well? What could be improved? I think this is a good way to start our session before we dive into all the details. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. And Charles, maybe I can I can kick things off just a little bit here and then hand it to you um, to get your perspective on it. I think in general, what we've seen is that workflows are extremely varied around the world, depending on sort of the local healthcare system and the way that healthcare is being delivered and genomics is being incorporated into it. Um, I mean, one of the things that we do a lot of is working with individual institutions in order to figure out how uh, technology and phenotypes can, can come in and sort of meet that workflow and enhance it, um, kind of where it's at. Um, I think a lot of different hospitals are at the level of digitizing a lot of information uh, in rare disease and in genomics. Um, others may have that information digitized but not structured, um, or even some places have it digitized and structured, but it's not interoperable. Um, and others are trying to do the entire stretch all at once. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on in the UK right now with the investment. So I think that's um, really exciting to see and, and help support. Um, I think in terms of what's going well, uh, across the industry that we've seen is that there's a lot of standardization of the variant prioritization process um, that has happened over the last couple of years and the sort of global adoption of the human phenotype ontology as the standard for phenotyping uh, patients with, with rare diseases and, and the use of that information for that variant prioritization. Um, I think we're also seeing increasingly the adoption of, of genomic testing early on in the diagnostic process in rare disease, which is very exciting and in terms of its potential to help shorten that diagnostic odyssey for people. Um, some of the, the opportunities for improvement, though, are really about increasing the interoperability of the data that is being collected, and especially as testing moves earlier and earlier into the process, into secondary or primary care, making sure that that data is collected in structured ways and interoperable across the entire care pathway um, is really important, regardless of what electronic health records are being used at those different stages um, and, and how that, uh, that sort of circle of care expands as needed uh, for the diagnosis. So I think what we've been focused on is helping institutions collect and store the structured information for phenotype and family history and genetic data. Um, and trying to customize and configure that to match the local environments. Um, and I think one of the important things for us is investing in this interoperability in the long run. And I think that's one of the exciting things to have Charles on this too, is, is having him join us as a specialist in our interoperability and helping us drive and advance um, those capabilities within phenotypes now and into the future. Um, Charles, is there anything you wanted to add to the, this, this question? Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. And you know, from my perspective as an interoperability specialist, what's worked really well um, and continues to work really well, especially historically, is the movement of unstructured information, things like uh, PDFs or uh, paper or, or faxes. Um, what needs to work better and where the gap is, uh, is the movement of structured information like uh, Orion mentioned, phenotypic abnormalities, HBO-coded symptoms, uh, pedigrees, for example, and moving that structured information between all sorts of, of different systems. And that gap is most pronounced in the institutions and the organizations that we partner with, the institutions that deliver specialized care and, and medical genetics, for example. They really rely on sources of, of information uh, like omics data that um, now that is just sort of coming into clinical 
uh, care is is really natively structured. Um, and so that is where the biggest gap is, and that's where we need to improve the most. And to jump right into it, are there different approaches that you have thought about and that maybe Phenotips is helping people integrate to solve that issue? We have a number of different tools uh, to help accomplish that. We've got all sorts of different interoperability standards uh, as tools that we can integrate with electronic health records or variant interpretation systems, laboratory informa information management systems. It really depends on the circumstances of the workflow and the organization that we're, we're partnering with. Um, uh, and we'll evaluate uh, the workflow uh, and decide what integration style best uh, suits their practice um, and, and try and build an integration that way. Yeah, certainly is good to personalize it because not one workflow isn't going to work for everybody. So being able to tailor it, like you're saying, Charles, and and I think, you know, I, Orion was definitely mentioning that this is really helpful specifically in, in rare disease diagnosis. I think you're kind of hinting at that at least that, you know, looking at phenotypic features and using that information in these workflows to actually get a diagnosis, um, you know, any other thoughts surrounding that in terms of like that rare disease diagnostic odyssey and how this inoptability and integrated workflows is just so important because diagnostic odyssey can take years. I've heard five to seven years, you know, tends to be an average, especially for rare diseases. Um, any thoughts on that for either of you? I think the, the image that immediately pops into my mind is the sort of virtuous cycle, the infinity sign that um, came out a year ago or so out of a lot of the Genomics England uh, communications and sort of this virtuous cycle between clinical care uh, for rare disease and feeding into and then benefiting from the research. Uh, around gene discovery and drug development and the evaluation of this phenotype-genotype association that comes out of clinical practice. I think the, ex the exciting and, and powerful shift that's happening is rather than having research necessarily be the place where you're funding all of the data generation in genetics, that is shifting to clinical practice, but that requires the interoperability of all of the clinical data to make its way into research so that it can fuel that entire research process that feeds back into better, faster diagnoses, better understanding all of the different rare diseases that are out there and the trajectories of them and our ability to understand all the different genes and what their impacts are in terms of human health. So I think there's sort of the immediate impact um, in terms of if you have structured data as part of the clinical workflow, there are algorithms and tools that can come to bear to improve the diagnosis of that particular patient, but also it's the entire ecosystem and the way that this system of sort of healthcare plus, plus research come together, um, where having that data in a digital and structured way is sort of essential for that feedback loop. Yeah, I think what Orion is describing is like a, a learning healthcare system. That's a term that some in the audience might be familiar with. Um, and like you said, that the symbol of an infinity loop, it's a loop, it's a data feedback loop. And we need to build our IT systems and our electronic health records in a way that data can be collected at the point of care and sent off to another IT system or another organization that uh, looks at that data for research purposes or um, quality improvement purposes, 
tries to find phenotype genotype uh, correlations um, or make new guidelines or recommendations for uh, for for practice and then deliver that information back to the clinicians at the point of care so they can uh, adjust their their practice and, and deliver better care for patients so it really is a cycle of you know you're getting some information you're able to process that data and say what does this really mean but then you might need more clinical information so you know as you're describing sometimes it's like the chicken and the egg scenario where you're like well we need this to have that and it kind of just keeps going back and forth in that sense and you know as we're talking about phenotypic data plays a really major role in this process of the diagnosis getting into more of the details what aspects of phenotypic data tend to be the most helpful do you think that this is going to become more mainstream of getting this information um i don't know if you guys have seen a difference in terms of how it's being used even in different countries, because you guys do have that perspective that's a little bit more unique than other people that are just practicing in one area and just seeing one healthcare system. Right, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a clinician, so I can't say exactly what's most helpful uh, uh, in the clinic, but we've heard from customers that um, phenotypic abnormality information, when you uh, codify it with the, the HBO terminology, it gives them a really precise way to describe phenotypic abnormalities for patients. And they can attach little bits of uh, data to those, um, those observations like the severity or the age of onset. And that uh, creates really uh, great opportunities for clinicians to collaborate with their laboratory professionals who are looking at the variants and trying to find a, a causative variant. Um, and because of that really enhanced communication between um, professionals in the care continuum, I, I think it will go mainstream. Um, and I think uh, you know, HBO terminology and the use of phenotypic data is seeing an international uh, adoption. Uh, Ryan, what do you think about that? I absolutely agree. I think this is this is starting to go, go mainstream and certainly all of the downstream tools and the variant interpretation systems rely on actually HBO coded phenotypic data in terms of figuring out where in the genome are we looking for particular sorts of variation that might explain the, the particular patient that we have um, and their condition. I think one of the things that came out and I just got back uh, to Toronto from the GA4GH um, plenary, which is in Barcelona. And one of the interesting things there was that there was a recurring theme across a few different uh, organizations and meetings there around how collection of structured phenotypic data is actually one of the critical aspects that a lot of these projects are working on in terms of the, the workflow for getting this as part of the clinical process because it is necessary for that downstream genomics and the downstream genomics in a lot of cases is, is sort of worked out that is you know due to huge efforts and advances over the last uh, couple of years those, those things are, are pretty well fleshed out nowadays, but the, the critical information of the phenotype being collected and then shared with that downstream process is, is now one of the, the bottlenecks and that's where we're trying to help. And it really helps as Charles is also saying of when the healthcare provider that's ordering that genetic test, they're sending it to the lab, you know, say we're talking about for a lot of rare diseases, it's going to be in the pediatric setting with children of saying, okay, this is what we are seeing. And um, I was recently doing an interview with Dr. Uh, Laura Bean from uh, Perkin Elmer Genomics. And I said, what, what's your wish list for what do you wish that 
clinicians would write when they're ordering this test for, let's say it's a whole, whole genome, exome, whatever that is. She said, if they're nonverbal or if they're verbal, and that didn't even occur to me, but she's like, oftentimes that's not written. And that really helps in terms of where they're looking in the genome, what genes and getting as specific as you can. So having more of that narrow versus wide thing. So something wide would be like global developmental delay. That is a very generic term as opposed to, um, you know, speech delay or language delay. That's much more specific. I think that's a great point, Kira. And I think that's one of the limitations with a lot of the traditional paper, especially intake um, or test requisition forms is that by, by virtue of the fact that it has to fit on a page. And it's um, tiny, like limited. as an ordering provider, I'm like, this is not enough room. Again, I, I don't work in pediatrics, but yeah, good point. So I think we really think that the future here is having that as part of the clinical process, this deep phenotyping of, of notating and coding those particular distinctive specific terms about the patient's clinical presentation um, and having that be integrated into the workflow and being able to streamline that that and with with text mining and other capabilities to to help with that process but that that we should be spending as much time on the on the clinical phenotyping there as on the <laughs> the detailed notation of the billing codes but unfortunately the health economic side of things doesn't uh, bias in that favor right now Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, a, that's a good point. And it's like, you know, there's what we want to do versus what we can do um, and how it's going to help with, you know, billing side. That's always part of the conversation, you know, the insurance, and obviously that's going to really differ based on, on different countries and different healthcare systems there. And I, I think we have already seen that using these inoperability standards is aiding in the diagnosis of rare diseases. Have you guys seen when these workflows are being used are we getting faster diagnoses, but also are we getting more accurate? Because it's common in the rare disease community for people to have an initial diagnosis. And then a couple of years later, they get the actual accurate diagnosis. So for a couple of years, they have a misdiagnosis. Um, so I guess my, my question here is, are you seeing it being done faster and actually getting a, a precise, correct diagnosis because of using all of these new standards and workflows? I think the answer is absolutely, but it's in so many different places as well. Yeah. Um, and I think it's not an easy stat to say. Well, yeah. And it depends on what the sort of projects are. I mean, you have some tremendous successes from some of the like rapid testing for critically ill newborns that's coming out of the US and coming out of Australia with. Um, with Stephen Kingsmore and with Sarnitza Stark. And I think there's there's some incredible use of then pulling together of these tools and the interoperability of the data between them that helps is necessary to have sort of an end-to-end -end pipeline that works really, really quickly. Um, but I also think there's a big piece here about the, the, the long, you know, the, the full learning healthcare system or the full incorporation of the, the research side of things. I mean, out of the interoperability of these data means that, you know, all of the different rare disorders that have been characterized through international efforts like the Matchmaker Exchange then publish their work, feedback into the, the faster diagnosis of, of patients who are seen today. I think one of the most powerful statistics, I think, from my perspective, that, that relates to this rapidly advancing 
um, knowledge base that helps drive better and faster diagnosis for, for new patients who are seen uh, with rare disorders is that the, I think, and numbers vary hugely here depending on the constraints, but it, if you were doing an exome or a genome sequencing project, I think the average fraction of patients with rare disease that you are able to diagnose on first pass is something around the order of 35%. Everyone who's in attendance, feel free to chime in in terms of the Q&A with different numbers or, or come, you know, send me an email. <laughs> you have complaints with that uh, statistic, but that you end up diagnosing another 10% if you do a reanalysis a year later. So the difference between 35 and 45% uh, in terms of diagnostic rate is just based on a year of accumulated knowledge um, that's then brought to bear with better annotations for the exact same patients based on the exact same data um, for in the context of that patient record. And it's just the other side of this uh, learning healthcare system that is providing those, those degree of advances. Um, Charles, did you have more to add to that? Yeah, the, the use of interoperability standards are creating new phenomenons for rare disease care. Uh, yeah, Orion mentioned the Matchmaker Initiative, which is, there are multiple Matchmaker Initiatives, but for those who don't know, they're basically consortiums of organizations who get together and they try and compare their undiagnosed clinical cases, look for similarities among all the cases, and try and find a, a, a diagnosis um, that way that they couldn't otherwise provide on their own. There are also rare disease networks that are popping up around the world. They're established in Europe, and they're now um, being established in the United States and Canada. And what they do are, they're again, consortiums of organizations who try and collaborate around uh, rare disease cases, share resources, share knowledge, try and get um, patients the, the best possible access to rare disease care, allow their specialists and their care teams to collaborate, um, exchange knowledge again, and um, provide care to, to patients wherever they may be on a national scale or an international scale. But both of these things, the matchmaker initiatives and the rare disease networks around the world, they there's a prerequisite, and that's the ability to, to share information. Um, the, they tend to use the latest and greatest diagnostic technologies like whole genome sequencing or other omics technologies. But what's new about these diagnostic technologies is they produce really high volumes of data, the kind of data that can't be passed through the traditional mediums of sharing information like faxes or, or email or mailing records. You can't print out a whole genome sequence file, for example, um, and send it by mail or even send it through a fax machine. It doesn't fit, it's too much. So interoperability standards are creating uh, rules of the road for these organizations who participate in these networks or these matchmaker exchanges to format their data and share it with one another so that they can look for similarities in their undiagnosed clinical cases and they can try and find diagnosis, uh, uh, diagnosis for, their, for their patients uh, faster and, and more frequently. Charles, that's a fantastic point that I think if you asked me, I would have like thought about that, but where we used to be with being able to fax and some people are still doing it, my office fax, um, being able to just send a whole genome, like I can't imagine how many pages that would be, like how many volumes, right? It, it, so it's actually a whole pallet. It's you a whole what? Paper. It's a whole pallet. So like one of those wooden um, oh my gosh. things that you see in warehouses, you can, you can see a whole genome sequencing will fit on one of those. That's insane. So that's just like you, obviously that is, that is not going to be useful. 
And being able to, like you said, of taking all these undiagnosed cases and saying, okay, what are similarities we see between them, especially taking in the, the phenotypic data, that's so important. It's like, how are we sharing this also in a way that's secure? So yeah, that's just a fantastic point to bring up and for people to think about like another level to this of, yeah, sure, of healthcare providers having this information and being able to diagnose, but also being able to share this data with other organizations and groups so that we can work together to get a diagnosis, not just with someone's healthcare provider, but in these groups. And that there are so many rare disease networks and nonprofits and organizations within organizations this is so vitally important to be able to do this. Um, anything else to add to this before I, I want to ask about pedigrees? Cause you know, I'm a genetic counselor, so I have to ask about that at some point, uh, but I didn't want to move on too quickly. If there was anything else to comment on there. All right. So I'll jump into the pedigree. Um, so obviously we've been talking about a lot of phenotypic data and how this is helping with diagnosis and how, you know, all of this, filtering through data and sharing data is really important. Now, I think it's also important to mention, and you know, I would I would fail if I didn't mention family history and pedigrees as a genetic counselor, but how how does this actually help inform diagnosis? How often is family health history actually relevant to a person's diagnosis? Because Many rare diseases, I don't want to say most of them, but a good chunk of rare diseases are de novo or random. It's not something that's inherited in the family. Now, there are a chunk that are rare diseases that are inherited in some way. But I mean, I don't know, Orion, maybe I'd love to hear from you first because of what you've been involved in um, with GA4GH and just like how, how much is the pedigree really playing a role in diagnosis? Mm, thanks for the question, Kira. I mean, I think it's, it's, I, I almost want to defer to you and get your perspective <laughs> as a genetic counselor on this. I think there's um, there are a whole lot of different different things that a pedigree and family health history is used for. Um, certainly in the context of our, our work with the GFRGH to try to help with pedigree standards, you know, there are a lot of things that we see pedigree information being used and in, you know, a lot of very large projects where this information is uh, being collected and it's obviously used as part of uh, the standard clinical practice um, for a variety of really good reasons. I think in general, there are a lot of rare diseases for which the mode of inheritance is uh, important in, in terms of assessing what conditions uh, could explain that particular patient's presentation, um, that the pedigree is a really important tool for visualizing and, and representing that information and helping to uncover that. Um, I think it comes, it's both quite common in the rare disease context, as well as in other aspects of, of genetics with lots of hereditary uh, cancer predisposition syndromes, for instance, as well. Um, I, I think this is an important part because so much of what we deal with in genetics are, are hereditary cases and, and family planning and understanding what the, the likelihood of, of a particular condition being passed on is. Um, I absolutely, de novo, uh, de novo variants are, are a big factor for a number of rare uh, conditions, but documenting that clearly on the pedigree is an important way to, to represent that information and making sure that we have the familial relationships documented as part of some uh, computable system that connects with the electronic health record 
system is important then for even feeding that information on to a variant prioritization system that is then being sure about its or, or taking that information appropriately into account when filtering the variants. So, uh, you know, if you need to know who the mother and who the father are for the particular sample, and that information needs to be coded in the laboratory information management system and passed along to the variant prioritization system, et cetera, uh, in terms of, of filtering things properly. Uh, so I think all of those sort of come to bear and having that information be collected up front and presented as part of a clinical care process for the family is uh, really, really important for the majority of, of rare conditions. It but, really is. Yeah, I, I think even when you're looking at it, there's other aspects to consider. Like if there's other people in the family that should be tested to see if they have that condition. So even if family history is, you know, nothing is necessarily relevant to the disorder, it also can work in the reverse direction where you say, well, this patient has siblings that maybe should be tested um, because maybe they're younger and we wouldn't necessarily see certain symptoms yet. Or maybe they have, um, you know, that that patient, their their parents have siblings that maybe those siblings are looking at having children soon and should have this information. Um, or if it's something where it's an autosomal recessive condition where both biological parents need to be carriers of the condition, and we're identifying, okay, they are carriers, then their siblings should be offered testing and reached out to, to say, okay, if you are looking at having biological children, you know, there's a good chance, two out of three chance that you are also a carrier of this condition. Um, so I think, you know, looking at that too, and, and, and sometimes family history does give us a sense of, oh, there are cousins or other people in the family that have similar symptoms. Okay, this is painting a picture for us. Um, but you have to consider some of them are, are de novo, which I think, you know, is, is a good, good chunk of, of rare diseases there. Um, yeah. And I think looking at what phenotype specifically offers, you guys, you know, offer a pedigree builder, which I think is, is very relevant to mention at this point. Um, but I think when we're looking at, you know, overall of how people can integrate phenotypes into their workflow, I think it'd be great to dive into that a little bit. I do see we have questions in the chat. Keep those going, guys, in the chat. Q&A box, please. <laughs> um, so definitely keep those questions going. I have a couple more until we get to there. Um, but as electronic health record systems have become the standard, how can we better adapt our system to become this learning healthcare system? I think, Charles, you mentioned this concept earlier that people might be familiar with this. What should we be keeping in mind as we're adapting our systems? Because there are still practices that, you know, this year, next year are going to be switching from a paper-based system to an EHR or places that are switching EHR companies. Um, what are things that we should be keeping in mind with this and, and maybe how phenotypes can help in these processes? Like I said earlier, the, the learning healthcare system relies on implementing the, the data feedback loop. So for organizations who are you know, going away from paper-based workflows and they're, you know, they're using a, a digital EHR system for the first time, they need to be careful. Uh, they need to choose a system that is capable of integrating with other systems and moving information between all their other IT systems or between other organizations if they need to. We need to be building electronic health records and other IT systems in a way that uh, they're better at sending and receiving uh, types of uh, PHI um, with, say, other IT systems or organizations who 
um, manage that learning healthcare system. And at Phenotips, we're trying to use as many tools as possible in order to help uh, realize that vision. Like I said, we've got a ton of different interoperability standards under our, our tool belt. Fire is one, uh, HL7B2 is, is another. Um, on the research side, we have uh, phenopackets as well as the GA4GH pedigree standard. So we are uh, trying to be um, as open as possible with uh, uh, moving uh, data uh, around for our, our customers um, and with their other systems so that it, it is possible to implement a learning healthcare system. Anything to add to that, Orion? No. no. <laughs> Charles pretty much covered it, right? Yeah. Um, I think along with that, Phenotips offers, you guys have just so many different genomic tools within your set. Are there other tools that your users have shared that said, oh, we use Phenotips with this other tool and it's really helpful for us to be able to do X, Y, Z? Yes, uh, actually we're starting to create more standardized integrations with a variant interpret tool, interpretation tool called uh, Imagine. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, many customers are requesting that, that integration and it's uh, it's been implemented actually with one, one of our customers and it works really well. Customers can take their uh, phenotypic information out of phenotypes and send it to this variant interpretation tool. And that allows their lab professionals to have really precise descriptions of the phenotypes um, and provide uh, really nice suggestions or, or test results for those clinicians at the point of care. And it's really exciting to hear cases and projects that show how phenotypes is helpful. I know I'm a good, I'm a person that really likes examples to see like, you know, it's one thing to talk about all these concepts and it's really thrilling to hear, oh, this is what's happening in statistics. But, you know, I know some people are like me that really hold on to, I want to hear this project and how it works and more of like almost a storytelling angle. I think humans are really good at taking information in that way. Um, are there any rare disease projects that you guys have heard of or, or worked with directly where users have taken advantage of phenotypes tools? I know most of our participants are in the US, UK, Canada. Are there any projects that come to mind that you're like, yes, this was a really interesting one or one that really was able to utilize a lot of what phenotypes offers in order to get a diagnosis or have a project be finished or have really good results? I think we have a, a project right now that is a great story to tell. Uh, in the United States, there's the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, which is one of those rare disease networks I was talking about earlier. And they're trying to, to resolve some of the most complex uh, undiagnosed cases in the US. Um, and in order for them to help accomplish this goal, they needed to collect curated phenotype, genotype uh, information in a single portal from across the network and then upload that information to the, the matchmaker uh, initiative. And what Phenotips has been able to, to help them do is to push all that information uh, that we collect at the point of care, um, you know, the phenotypic information, the pedigrees, the genotypes, uh, into their central portal where they manage all of their cases um, from across the network and as well push that up to the matchmaker initiative. So that is, that's one of these these projects that um, is a it's it's a great example of how Phenotips is engaged with interoperability on, on large scales. 
Yeah, certainly. I think it's really great to hear, um, especially the, I think the UDN is out of Boston, or at least they have some location in Boston. So it is it is cool to see of just, you know, throughout the world being able to come together, you know, to diagnose certain conditions there. Yeah, yeah, the UDN is an amazing organization. It's uh, we've had the pleasure of supporting them for a really long time um, and integrate with their they have sort of a main uh, case management system and they for all of the patients that they see um, patient participants, I guess that they see from across that that network. Um, they curate all of the phenotype and, and genetic information and that all ends up uh, living within phenotypes integrated into their their system and then and then getting pushed off to for matchmaking and other things, but it, as Charles was mentioning. So um, I think that's been a hugely successful program uh, that they've rolled out with, a, uh, with all of the patients that they've been able to see and, and diagnose through it. Yeah, it, it really is a remarkable organization. And, and I see we have so many questions in the Q&A, so I'm gonna switch gears a little bit so we can answer some of those. And then if we have more time, we can bounce back to questions that I have. Um, Francesca asks, Implementations, what will be available to those who will buy phenotypes next year, which was not available in previous versions? Um, I don't know how much of this is going to be public information, but um, is there anything that is public information that you guys can give us a preview of what could be coming out in the next year or so from phenotypes? I can give a quick, quick, uh, like a teaser, curtains, a little bit of a teaser. I mean, I think a, a lot of our efforts right now are on uh, patient intake questionnaires and streamlining that process. Um, we're also going through a process of rewriting the core of the application for sort of speed and robustness and scalability uh, as we start rolling out for a lot of these much larger uh, prog programs and projects that Phenotips has been adopted with, with uh, hundreds of thousands of patients in them. Um, so we're, we're uh, investing quite a lot in the scalability of it. Um, and then there are a lot of uh, improvements that we've actually uh, talked about with you, Kira, on a previous one around the pedigree in particular. Um, so there have been some very long, long time requested features and capabilities around representing uh, parents sort of by them, uh, sort of single parent and then children um, without having all the partners always represented, incorporating donors and um, other really important things around uh, sex and gender representation in the pedigree that uh, we've been wanting to work on for a while and have uh, expanded our team actually in order to make sure that we're uh, delivering on those in the near term. So uh, those, those and, and other things I think will be in store in the, in the next year. Francesca, thanks for the question. Yes, very, very kind of, uh, you know, felt like a very interviewer, like Ellen DeGeneres got a question like, let's let's get the tea, what's going on at Phenotips. Um, the next question we have is from Wiley. You mentioned in passing the use of natural language processing as a means for gathering phenotypic information, assuming from things like encounter notes or diagnosis. What challenges do you see in this strategy? Do you feel that the direct mapping of NLP output or something like HPO code will ever be possible without some form of human involvement? So really looking at changing this from a lot of human legwork to more of an automation side, if I'm understanding uh, the question correctly. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a conversation we've had a lot over the last few months is how do we get unstructured text into phenotypes to apply our natural language processing feature to it to try and pull out phenotypic abnormalities. And the challenge is trying to get those encounter notes, those referrals, or those clinical summaries out of electronic health record systems in a way that um, 
is readable by our natural language processing system. Um, it, most of the time, like I said uh, earlier, that information comes in a PDF and it's really hard to, to read that kind of uh, clinical text out of a PDF. So we are um, working through the challenges of, of trying to get that unstructured text out of other systems um, in a way that uh, the, the phenotypic abnormalities can be pulled out. And I, I don't think we'll ever... Uh, even if we do, I guess I would, even, even when we do, even as we pull this or, or get unstructured data in textual formats through a variety of means, I think there's still, I, I mean, and I, I really like this question. Um, so thank you, Wiley, for asking it. I think there's still a fundamental question about how much can we rely on automated systems and the data that is in the electronic health record system today to provide the phenotypic component for genomic analysis. Is it sufficient? And certainly our philosophy is that, no, it absolutely is not sufficient. There is a huge amount of critical information being added through the process of a, a uh, physical review and the documentation of that clinical exam. Um, and that phenotypic information. And you know, there's that side, which is sort of the specialist-driven side. There's also a huge amount of value in patients providing that information. But I think there's always going to be a, a limitation in what is able to be structured from natural language processing. And there's always a risk that it's going to get things wrong. And I think for such a critical piece of the process is actually where you're looking in the genome, <laughs> for the diagnostic result, you really, really at the very minimum want to review and make sure that the information that's coming out of the NLP um, or other automated methods is not just correct, but complete. And I think any th that that is a critical part of this process and that all of the systems, I, I think there've been huge improvements in terms of NLP um, over the last you know, three, five years. Um, and the ability to extract structured information um, from the EHR. But I think there's a huge still obligation and an importance on and responsibility to review that information as a critical part of the patient's record. It's not the, the EHR and feeding directly into the genomics. I think there's an, an essential component, which is this, this check and the review of the information that we're using as part of the test to to inform the genomic analysis. Um, I think the way that this will evolve is potentially actually just greater collaboration back and forth between the laboratories and you know, the discoveries, the, the findings from the, gen the genetic test and the report that comes back from it, and then potentially additional phenotyping that comes out there. But I do, I think the, the NLP and the work that we're doing there is to try to streamline the process and make it so that it's, it's faster and easier, but by no means do I think it's a substitute um, for the, the critical sort of evaluation and documentation of deep phenotyping. Yeah, and I want to pull out a, a nugget that you said there, because I think, as you said, this is such a great point. And again, Wiley, thank you so much for this great question that even if we are getting information pulled out of like an EHR, all of that, 
it's still really important to make sure that it's complete and correct. I'm literally just saying what you just said, but I think it's so important to get that into people's minds that not just like, oh yeah, everything looks good. It's like, well, is it having everything we need? Because as we talked about earlier, having as much information as you can for the bioinformatics team that's looking at that genomic information to help with the diagnosis. Like you don't want to miss anything because that risk reward is huge. If you miss something and then they're looking at the wrong genes that don't have that pathogenic variant in them that could set someone off on years of being undiagnosed. Um, so yeah, fantastic question there. Um, our next question, um, comes from Brian. He asked regarding periodic reanalysis of unsolved cases, could you speak to the challenge of these cohorts building up as new testing is sent over time? Efforts towards automation in this process versus manual initiation. Which cases are most fruitful for reanalysis? And I was actually kind of thinking this, Orion, when you were talking about that difference between um, people getting initial diagnosis, you said something around 35%, and then people that are reanalyzed a year later, 10% more. So now 45% of cases end up having a diagnosis. I, you know, I think we're kind of uh, Brian and I are thinking along the same terms, like how, how is that done? Is it people going back and saying, it's been a year, I'm going back to my healthcare provider and asking for this to be looked at again, or is it just some practices? Cause it's going to be practice dependent. Some practices are like, oh, we automatically do this every year. That patient's going to have an appointment on an annual basis. So we're going to look back again. Um, this is just so interesting to me. I don't actually know if those systems are, are doing it automatically. Um, I've heard of cases where people have to go back and ask for reanalysis, but I have never, I'm not familiar with any system that just periodically re-updates those, those cases with, with new findings or sends them off for reanalysis again. Ryan, have you ever heard of I'm not, like that? I'm not familiar with any uh, off the top of my head. I think it the the certainly there's a huge benefit to have that sort of infrastructure in place, but there, it also then presents a bit of a quandary, I think, to the healthcare system to now an obligation to go out and communicate any changes in those results. Um, and that may not be uh, a work that they are uh, have capacity to deal with or liability in case they can't actually get a hold of those patients um, otherwise. So the ways that I've usually seen it incorporated are where the particular program or project has some cadence with which they're they're doing this on mass or at scale. Most common in the research world, where they're you know these these findings and results are sort of coming out um, that talk about this this big increase or, or delta from that reanalysis. Um, but there are I think there are a lot of efforts where, in the context of the healthcare system, there are annual checkups or annual reviews of that information um, that are where we're going to see this more and more. And I think there was at the GFRGH, there was a project in uh, South, South Korean national project where they were doing, um, uh, had a lot of the infrastructure for this with, with a really strong annual checkup uh, process, if I'm not calling correctly, where I think this, this sort of uh, thing feeds in uh, very clearly. Yeah, I think that makes sense of, it wouldn't necessarily be automation, but that if a patient, especially in the pediatric setting, it is common to go back for an annual visit. So oftentimes you're going back to the same geneticist, genetic counselor, genetics team, and they know you. And so they're going, you know, going back to the same place. So I think that is a natural time to say, okay, now let's, let's look back at it, but they're still initiating it in that sense. 
But in one sense, it's like, well, if they have the appointment booked every year, then it's part of their workflow. So it's kind of like a yes and no answer. Or as part of like private private practice or concierge clinics. They're so increasing, I think we're seeing genomics and sort of an annual genomic checkup being added as like an added, being offered as an added value um, to a lot of the private private health plans or private health healthcare services, where then I think a reanalysis is, is part of uh, what they can offer for it. And so I think it's still going to be manually initiated based on that cadence of the way that the patient engages with the healthcare system. Yeah. And I could even see that being offered as you're, you're hinting at, not just for people that have like an undiagnosed disease, but even in like the prevention space of healthy individuals going and saying, well, I'm going to have my exome or genome sequence. And every year I'm just going to check back. Is there anything that we understand now? Of like, you're going to have a bunch of variants where you say, we don't really know what this means, variant of unknown significance. And then saying, oh, now we know this actually increases your risk for whatever. So now we're going to give you extra screenings or we're going to put you on a certain medication or, or whatever it is. So I think we've been focusing a lot today on rare disease diagnosis is that that's our topic today. But I think it also a lot of what we're talking about can be applied to that preventative medicine side that we're going to be seeing a lot more of as the cost of testing is, is dramatically dropping the last 20 years. It's like insane when you look at a chart of what we started with 20 years ago. Um, our next question comes from Derek. Do you foresee utilizing or expanding phenotypes in order to take into account epigenetic methylation profiles, assuming PCR-free long-read sequences platforms like ONT expand as well to examine phenotypic expression, or is this already the case? Um, epigenetics is such a fascinating area, and I, I think going to be like the next, like the epigenome is going to be, you know, the, the next area that I think we're going to be talking a lot about. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on this or are we too far in the future with looking at like the epigenome? We're, I don't, we're not so, so far in the future, but this is a little outside of where sort of the, the main efforts that we've been focused on have been. I guess I would say there are a few different projects that we're involved in that involve um, more long read sequencing, which are now increasingly, you know, starting to collect methylation and epigenetic data as part of that uh, sequencing, which is incredibly exciting, um, as well as other sort of multi-omics uh, projects. So like uh, Genomics for RD here in Canada and the, the Genomic Answers for Kids project in uh, Children's Mercy, where they're doing a huge, uh, great things with, with long read sequencing. Um, I think that is a, a huge uh, amount of data and increase in the richness of data that's available that's uh, going to be coming down the pipe is very much on the research side, I think, right now. Um, but we'll be seeing more and more uh, sort of clinical use, I think, of that information. And then we'll, we'll start getting into working with uh, partners for how to, how to record the critical information from that within phenotypes. Charles, is there more you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I completely agree. I think it will depend on when that kind of epigenome information becomes more routinely used in, in clinical care. Um, once it does, we'll have to figure out how, how best to handle the kind of volume and complexity of that data and uh, how to ingest it into our systems, um, as well as structure it and make it uh, interoperable for everyone else. You know, one of some of the biggest challenges of those future digital technologies is the volume and the velocity and the complexity of that data and for systems like phenotypes and other electronic medical records to, to figure out how to structure it and store it and analyze it um, and exchange it with other IT systems or organizations. Um, so it's it, it's going to be an interesting 
uh, future for sure when that epigenome information becomes more available. Yeah, I'm so in intrigued by the epigenetics. I think it's just so, so fascinating. So people should keep their eye on that because I think we're going to see a lot of interesting information come out of that. Um, and our last question, at least for the moment, you guys keep submitting Q&A because we do have a few minutes left, um, but I also have lots of questions. So either way, guys, um, we do have an anonymous question coming in. How do you manage sending info from phenotypes, family-based records, so pedigree for all, fam all family members to EHRs that are patient-based? Um, so I think what they're asking is, which correct me if I'm wrong, person that wrote this, um, of connecting pedigrees with also keeping it HIPAA. So say you have um, a proband, uh, the patient, and then they also have a sibling or someone else in the family, and they're both being seen at the same clinic. Are you able to connect these in the sense of having the medical information, but keep it separate enough to abide by HIPAA standards? If the, that's a tough question. It is a tough question. <laughs> I like this yeah. question a lot. Yeah. It is... gets at the, the I, I mean, part of it, I guess I would say is it gets at the fundamental difference between family history information, which is clearly within the context collected and stored within the context of a patient record works really nicely in the context of EHRs versus what we think of as a genomic pedigree, which is a linked together family with the clinical and genetic information and the relationships between people. And that does not have a home within EHRs. Um, and that is, so I think there, in terms of context of managing and you know GDPR and HIPAA and the way that these, um, these things link up uh, the information within phenotypes to EHRs, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, developing, um, in, in sort of regulation around the, in this space. Um, but certainly, you know, within phenotypes, we sort of adopt the, the philosophy that's been used by genetics um, for, for a very long time, which is that genetics tends to care for the family. Um, and that involves having family records that include a pedigree for caring for that family. And that is ultimately separate from the main EHR. It is, it is a collection of information compiled from multiple patients together for the benefit of providing, providing better care for that family as a whole. That links, when, when we have that and represent that within phenotypes, which sits fundamentally separate from the EHR, but integrates with it, um, we have links between all of the patients that are, that are within that family-based uh, pedigree or family-based record with the pedigree to each of the, the patients within the EHR, uh, but those data are separate and it's really up to the clinician or the workflow for the way that that data does or does not go back to the EHR. In general, when the pedigree is used as part of that patient's uh, clinical care, there might be a snapshot of it uh, that's then saved back to the progress note um, or, or the, the patient chart within the EHR, but not always. Um, and I think the, the nature of that depends on the local regulation and depends on the local workflows of the institution, uh, but it's certainly a developing space. And this is one of the things that we're, uh, that the, actually the GA for GH pedigree standard is, is coming to bear on in terms of the, the flow of that information um, across that system, sort of from family history, then to pedigree, uh, potentially back um, and then down to, to testing. Yeah, this is um, the, it's the, one of the biggest technical challenges we have with integrating pedigrees and family information is that there's often not a family identifier or a family representation of EHR that we can send our pedigree and our family information to. And without that, um, 
our clinicians have to use a band-aid solution, which is what Orion alluded to, is they create some kind of snapshot or PDF or image of the pedigree, and they upload it into the, the EHR um, as something they can look at in a, in a separate tab, but it's not truly structured. Um, and I was talking about this at the beginning of the webinar, is this is where we need to improve. We need to be able to structure information and send it in interoperable ways, um, as opposed to the, the usual kind of PDF or fax or email that we've been we've been doing for um, for a long time. Yeah, well, I think that's just a beautiful note to have us wrap up because we kind of went full circle there. So I think that's really, really helpful for people to kind of wrap their head around. So thank you so much both of you, Orion and Charles, for just sharing so much insight. And you guys are experts in this field. And I learned so much as I knew I was going to. Um, and I really hope that our audience um, was learning along with me. You guys will see a feedback link in your browser when this webinar ends. It's also going to be emailed to you in case you're heading off to your next meeting or lunch if you're on the East Coast like us. Um, so please take a minute to fill out this feedback so that we can continue improving our webinars. We really want the webinars to be useful for you and giving you information that you really are looking for. Um, you know, obviously we all love talking about genetics, so I'm happy to talk about any topic related to genomics, genetics, but we really wanna target it with what information you wanna learn about. Um, the email is also gonna include a link to the Phenotip Speaker Series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions. I find this to be super helpful. So if I'm not the host, I can tune in as a participant. You can also go straight to phenotips.com. You can click the stories tab, um, which might be the resources tab now I'm realizing. Um, and then the speaker series is going to pop up on the drop down menu. And all the installments are on there. So you can uh, stream them that way. You can also stream them through your podcast app. So the Phenotype Speaker Series is now available as a podcast. So you can go on Spotify, Apple, all the major podcast apps um, and listen to it on there. And while you're there, give us a rating and review. We'd really appreciate that. It helps us shoot up in the charts. Um, and want you guys to stay tuned for our next webinar in November. Um, I'll give you a sneak preview. It's going to be something about genetic counseling focused because November houses the uh, Genetic Counselor Awareness Day. Um, so we figured we'd tie into that. If you've enjoyed our conversations here, you might also enjoy the podcast I host called DNA Today. It's also available on all social media um, and podcast players there. You can also head over to dnatoday.com if you want to go straight there. And I also wanted to give a shout out. If you're going to be in LA next month attending um, the ASHAG conference of 2022, drop by the Phenotips booth. Um, we're going to be booth 1250. And you can learn more about Phenotip software and work building integrated workflows for rare disease research and care. Um, might have a couple of fun things that you can grab swag-wise. Um, and you can also check out the Phenotips abstract poster and poster presentations on the implementation and evaluation of digital patient reported oncology questionnaire at the East Genomic Medicine Service Alliance. So that's a fun find. And wanted to mention, I'm personally going to be at NSGC. So I hope to see many of you there. Phenotips is also going to be there and it's in Nashville. So fun city. I haven't been to yet, but I'm really excited for it. Um, so if you see one of us, please come up, say hi. We love talking with you guys. Um, and thank you again, everybody for tuning in. I think this was a really great conversation and I'm glad that we could really focus and hone in on a specific topic today. Um, but again, let us know in that feedback link and the form of what you guys want to hear about in the future. You had so many great questions today. I think we spent 20 minutes just answering your questions directly. Um, so love seeing that. 
And we're really looking forward to hosting one of these again in November, but hopefully we see you at a conference beforehand. So thanks everybody so much. Again, you can go to phenotips.com to get all the information. So thanks everybody.